The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interview Hollywood insider Henrik Vartanian, the editor of Brave New Hollywood. Our topic of conversation is the impact of COVID-19 on the entertainment industry and Southern California's economy. Here are some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, says that he's working as part of the president's defense team in his upcoming second impeachment trial, and that he's prepared to argue that the president's claims of widespread voter fraud did not constitute incitement to violence because the widely debunked claims are true. Nearly one year into the pandemic, COVID-19 is spreading at record high rates in the United States, and with it, new variants for the virus are emerging. Last week, researchers in Ohio said they identified two unique variants in Columbus. Experts agreed that it's not surprising that the new variants have emerged in the U.S., but stressed that the virus's unchecked transmission in the country provides ample opportunities for its mutate. The best way, therefore, to crack down on variants is to stop the spread. COVID-19 has killed at least 395,957 people and infected about 23.8 million in the U.S. since last January, according to data by Johns Hopkins University. On per capita, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah have reported the most cases, while New Jersey and New York are leading the country in deaths. Despite hopes of mass vaccinations in 2021, the pandemic has continued to worsen. In just the first few weeks of 2021, the U.S. reported its highest ever numbers of daily infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the nation's foremost public health experts, said, on Sunday that the U.S. is weeks away, not months away, from considering the approval of new coronavirus vaccines. In an interview on NBC News Meet the Press, Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, who will be staying on as President-elect Joe Biden's chief science advisor, said he was optimistic that the vaccine candidates being made by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca can be evaluated soon. State houses in Washington, D.C. brace for potential violence leading up to Joe Biden's inauguration. The threat of extremist groups demonstrating at state houses across the country prompted some governors to roll out a show of force and ramp up security Sunday, less than two weeks after a mob overran the nation's capital. The stepped-up security measures were intended to safeguard seats of government from type of violence that occurred at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, when supporters of President Trump swarmed the building while Congress was certifying the Electoral College vote. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk to you about Twitter and social media in general. 
Now, for full disclosure, I use Twitter as well as Facebook and Instagram and a few others. But a few things have happened with Twitter lately that I want to address. One of them is that they, they're patting themselves on the back for finally and permanently banning President Trump. And rightfully so. I'm glad they did. After he incited violence and caused the, the stomping of the Capitol by his supporters. But that's a little too little too late for Twitter. You know, it wasn't until sometime late last year when they finally started to fact check President Trump and to put disclosures under some of his tweets. But for almost four years, they let him get away with murder. Trump, for four years, used Twitter as his main weapon to lie, to attack, to slander, to brainwash and spew propaganda to his supporters, and he was completely unchecked, and they did nothing. And now they are patting themselves on the back uh, for finally banning him, which is very easy now because it's toward the end of his presidency. And it's good PR for them because they can just now say, oh yeah, we were not part of the, the Trump enabling machine, which they were. And you know, it's easy to now, a lot of people are sort of jumping ship and sort of like denouncing Trump because uh, you know, his term is over and they're not afraid of him anymore. But where was your courage? Where was your your morals and your scruples back then? Why didn't you do it then? Why weren't you fact-checking Trump uh, on the, the God knows daily tweets that he would have lying and making things up and attacking people? And nothing was done about it. So I'm sorry, Twitter, but too little, too late. It's uh, the least you could have done was to finally ban him after the attempted coup d'etat that he tried to do. Now, something else happened recently that, um, that also made me a little irritated with Twitter. Now, some of you know that uh, I'm Armenian-American and I've been advocating for the, not only the recognition of the independent, independent Republic of Artsakh, but also bringing attention to the genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing that Azerbaijan and Turkey orchestrated on Armenians of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, on September 27th, which resulted in death of over 3,000 Armenians in six weeks. With all the international laws that they broke, Turkey recruiting ISIS, and mercenaries from Pakistan, Syria, Libya, and uh, beheading people alive, mutilating them, torturing them. You know, right now there are over 100 prisoners of war that Azerbaijan is not releasing. So because of my, my voice or my platform, or just talking about it, I get um, sort of harassing and threatening and all kinds of sort of social media messages and tweets and this and that. Now, most of them, I know that they're just sort of, you know, they just want to harass and it's hot air, I think. Uh, even some of the threats, I don't really take that seriously. But there were two threats that I, I sort of was alerted and I sent it to several people who are sort of very good with things like this. And all of them took it very seriously and told me to report them. 
The first one was a, uh, it came as a direct message on Twitter uh, from a Turkish person who said, uh, you should be afraid for your safety. We know where you live. And that was it. That was his only sort of message. You should be afraid of your safe, for your safety. We know where you live. And the second one was uh, from someone, an Azerbaijani person, and he said, we will cut off your ear. And that one was actually a tweet that was sent out, and someone saw it with my name on it and took a screenshot and sent it to me. Now, these people, unlike me and most people, they don't have their first and last name on their Twitter handles, nor do they have their photos. So you don't really know who they are, what their name is, etc. So after people being very alarmed and I was getting, other people had seen the one tweet about cutting off the ear. And of course, there were other tweets going around where people were trying to silence me. So people were sort of hitting me up all over the place and telling me to report. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take people's advice and report them. So I reported both of these people to Twitter. And a couple of days later, I received the same exact uh, one sentence from Twitter about both, both threats. And it says this, we didn't find a violation of our rules in the content you reported. Now remember, the first one said, you should be afraid for your safety. We know where you live. And Twitter's answer was, we didn't find a violation of our rules in the content you reported. Now, if telling someone you should be afraid of it for your safety, because I know where you live, if that's not a violation of Twitter rules, then Twitter has a bigger problem on their hands. Now, I did some research and found out there are multiple, multiple lawsuits against Twitter about things like this, and people who've been, who've been harassed and who've been threatened and slandered, and nothing has been done about it. And that's too bad. You know, I, I didn't stop by just uh, reporting these two people on Twitter. Uh, I actually wrote to their top executives, and I wrote to their, um, their support team, their communications team, their media team, and I am yet to receive a single response from anyone I tweeted also to their communications team, support, safety, public policy, and so on and so forth. I did not leave any, any rock unturned, but nothing, nothing done. I sent them screenshots as well as others that were harassing and such, but uh, nothing seems to be done. And uh, it's, it's just too bad because, um, you know, we... We want to be safe on these social media platforms. And if, you know, if I can't get a response from you know, two dozen letters and tweets and messages uh, on something that I think is pretty serious, then what kind of feedback are other people getting? So, you know, I, um, you know, I was not a fan of Parler, especially since it's sort of a, or it was, we don't know if it's going to come back, but it was a platform that was sort of created for conservatives and right wing and all of that. And, you know, wasn't crazy about that. But I did like the idea of Twitter having competition, because I think these companies, once they have some competition, then they're going to 
uh, be less cavalier about these kinds of things. And that includes Facebook and Instagram and all the others. I hope that other companies emerge that give Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all of those a run for their money and competition is created. So they are now forced to have more scruples and treat their users, their customers better. So there you have it. There's my bluntness uh, about Twitter. Now, having said that, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Vic Jarami. That's at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Henrik Vartanian is the editor-in-chief of BraveNewHollywood.com, one of the premier entertainment industry publications which focuses on indie films and rising stars. Henrik is involved in almost all facets of the entertainment industry and collaborates with some of the leading filmmakers, global talent, and showbiz stakeholders. He has interviewed countless A-list celebrities for Brave New Hollywood, as well as other domestic and international outlets, including Canal Plus, France, ITV, UK, and Reuters News Television, US and international. Good morning, Henrik. Welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? Hi, Vic. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Well, thanks for being with us. Um, You are a, a big industry insider. And uh, a lot of us are sort of wondering how Hollywood entertainment industry is coping, or has been coping, I should say, in the last almost a year now. So I wanted to talk to you and get some some scoop uh, from the business side, the, the artistic side, uh, if you will. Um, so I'm going to ask you sort of a, a generic question, a broad one. What's your perspective on where and how the industry is uh, as of today? Well, the industry has suffered a monumental disaster. This has been a 40-year low in box office and basically profitability. If I can use the perspective here of, say, 2019, where worldwide box office made $42 billion, in 2020, uh, they saw an 80% at least decrease in profitability. So it has been a big one for Hollywood. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, it has affected many parts of the industry from distribution, marketing, uh, who's working and who's not. Wow. And obviously the live streaming of brand new feature films that come out on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and such, that's that's not going to replace the uh, actual box, box office of people going to the theater to watch it. That's correct. So Hollywood had to think really quickly and try to recover some uh, loss and basically shuffle its uh, marketing of films. So streaming uh, was the answer, especially with a lot of people and families being home. Everything switched to from theatrical to streaming. Now, there are some theaters, uh, 30%, about 30% of U.S. theaters are still open, but they need to operate under strict COVID-19 guidelines. So streaming seems to be 
the big you know so, uh, solution here and as we know now something like HBO Max uh, where Warner Brothers uh, made a bold move of moving all their 2021 slate of films about 17 films if I'm not mistaken including Wonder Woman 1984 Suicide Squad 2 June, those movies were, will have their launch both theatrically now and uh, streaming on HBO Max. So that means the family of four or whatever will just uh, spend only $15 a month on HBO Max. So that seems to be the model that has changed for marketing and the exhibition of these films. Yeah, and that does not equate to a family of four each purchasing a ticket for like $14, $16, plus money at the concessions. So it's a, it's a much less, uh, it, the profit is much less. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Uh, they, you know, there's no money spent on uh, you know, sodas and popcorn. And you also have to uh, keep in mind the experience, the theater experience uh, is, is gone, which is something some people prefer. However, in the middle of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic, I think some people, the ones who had some disposable income or some sort of a money left around, they invested uh, some of that into buying bigger uh, TV sets at home and a better sound system. So what will happen to the marketing of film after uh, COVID-19? It will be interesting to see how much of this new trend will stay. Right. We talked about the industry as a whole, especially on sort of the studio level and financing and all of that. How about the toll and the damage to, you know, people who work in the industry, either behind the camera or just talent as well? What has been the the biggest challenge for them? Yeah, that has been uh, challenging too. I have some friends that are working, some friends that are not working, and these are friends that work as crew members on films. Production has become slower because they need to be a lot more careful uh, about wearing masks, about wiping down, uh, you know, the set. Uh, production has become more expensive because of that, and uh, there's le- less films and less. TV shows that are getting the green light to go back to production. So as a result, less people are working, uh, but the ones that are working have to have to be very careful and, of course, uh, basically uh, obey the guidelines. And we heard productions being shut down uh, numerous times. For example, Batman movie that was uh, shut down because of COVID scare. Uh, and some productions that are overseas and depending on where they are being shot uh, and how safe that country is and what their COVID-19 uh, numbers are, that also takes work away from Hollywood. So yeah. it has been very challenging. That's a good point. I'm I'm wondering, because I know that some countries have a much lax, you know, attitude about COVID-19. I'm wondering if Hollywood is going to lose even more work to other countries and cities that may be easier and cheaper for studios and networks to make, you know, TV shows and films. Like Croatia, I think I know, is one of them. Oh, yes. Uh, I 
I think so. It's something they can uh, consider. I uh, the name uh, escapes me, but uh, the uh, new Ben Affleck movie that was supposed to be shot somewhere in the states. They then decided to uh, shoot it somewhere in Eastern Europe, and now they it looks like they've settled on shooting it in Vancouver. So that's another production that's running away to be shot mm-hmm. somewhere else other than uh, Hollywood. There is a Liam Neeson action film called Retribution that actually started shooting in Berlin because it's safer there, the numbers are uh, lower, even though, even in lockdown, uh, you know, so their numbers are lower than, than us. Um, I know that there were other movies that had to move to other locations, uh, particularly in, area, uh, in those eastern uh, European areas because the numbers of COVID were lower there. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Henrik Vartanian, the editor-in-chief of BraveNewHollywood.com. Now, let's go back to the, <laughs> the most basic question is, how are productions, no matter what the precautions are, actually allowed to happen since, you know, on a set, it's not, not just the actors who are very close to each other, there's a lot of, you know, obviously if a scene requires that they're not six feet apart, they can't be. But also crew members can be very close to each other, too. So how's, what's the work around that? That's a very good question. Actually, <laughs> um, Hollywood is a big pillar of U.S. economy. So it's easy to see how the production cannot just stop and making movies cannot stop as far as the risk crew members and stars are putting themselves into uh depends on how well that set is uh run uh, who is watching after the safety and COVID guidelines on the set and how many people and how many times those things are being uh, looked at basically comes down to safety but to some degree business as usual and life has to business has to go on it is the opportunity for the production here to be very careful and run a really tight ship to make sure everybody is safe on the set right but also it also highlights the entertainment industry's lobby power in sacramento with governor Newsom. absolutely absolutely lots of money lots of friends Right. You know, uh, when, when, when an industry is making that big of a money and becomes such a big part of the American and of also global economy, uh, business has to move forward to, uh, in some extent and somehow has to, those wheels have to start turning. Yeah, absolutely. So let's change topics just a bit. You know, we were almost toward the end of the sort of the award season push. Normally, Around late October, you know, there's a huge push for studios to lobby for their films, their front runners for the award season, which uh, always starts with the Golden Globes in January, then the Screen Actors Guild and independent films, and then the Oscars. And a lot of that this year, or this last year, I should say, had happened virtually. What's the atmosphere like uh, around the award season? I don't hear a lot of buzz about anything. Yes, um, 
award season, it's uh, just like the distribution and marketing of films. It's just trying to basically adjust and make changes. I think the award shows are a great tool for remarketing and emphasizing the appeal and um, and the excitement of movies. Uh, I know that when it came to moving dates around because of uh, COVID-19 and lockdowns, Grammys moved to January 30, uh, moved from January 31st to March 14. At some point, clashed with uh, the date for SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild, and then Screen Actors Guild moved their show to April 4th. Uh, so they, they got along. Uh, Golden Globes moved its uh, award ceremony from early January, which is usually January 5th, I think, to February 28th. So they're, they're also looking into the way they can uh, you know, change dates around some sort of an audience because it is an important marketing tool and a good, uh, important celebration for Hollywood and people who work in it. Now, these awards are a lot more important to celebrities, uh, their publicists, agents, people who work in the industry than the public. But still, it's a very entertaining show that, you know, has escapist factors that, people like to watch movie-going audiences that is average person. Let me ask I you think, this. Uh, yes. Sorry, but if the SAG Awards are in April, then when are the Oscars? Um, the Academy Awards are usually the last award show that closes the award season after yeah. Film Independent and SAG and Golden Globes and all of that. Yeah, as a... As of right now, the Academy Awards are going to take place April 25 of this year. Wow, okay. So it's yeah. about almost two months later than they usually have it. Yes, usually the, the February date. Late exactly. February or early March. Yes, which also means all those uh, studio after parties have to be moved around and go according to that date. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Henrik Vartanian, the editor-in-chief of BraveNewHollywood.com. So going back to production and all of that, for 2000 and, you know, 2021, have the studios sort of accepted in networks that production is not going to be the same? And what's the outlook on how it's going to go down? I think so. I think the studios have accepted that the next five years is going to be the hardest one. And 2020 and 2021 are going to be the most impacted years where profitability and money was lost. So uh, the $160 billion loss that I mentioned earlier, that was projected for the next five years. So what the studios are doing are focusing on what must be produced and and by that it means what is appealing to a multi-generational audience especially because people are home a lot of people are employed and things that they are gonna put up on the streaming services need to have some sort of a family or multi-generational appeal so i think the as far as what they're changing is the type of films and shows that are going to uh, be 
on these streaming for, uh, services. We'll see a lot of reboots, a lot of like nostalgia galore is what I call it. Uh, some sequels uh, we see with shows like Cobra Kai or um, I think Hardy Boys on Hulu and uh, Rebecca, if I wanted to mention a movie with um, Army Hammer on Netflix. Uh, they are going back to things that are familiar with generations from the 80s, 90s, so uh, parents and children can watch everything and have it be profitable if they're going to advertise people to subscribe to HBO Max, let's say in Warner Brothers case, or um, Netflix and Apple TV and all those other uh, streaming services. Um, I I think for something like uh, Coming to America 2, Amazon paid about 125 uh Million was it for for the Eddie Murphy comedy? So they are looking very carefully at what they put out, and what so everything has to be kind of fail safe is what I'm trying to say. Right now, sometimes something very negative that has a huge impact can benefit uh, something fringe or another part of an industry. Is there any good news? Are there like let's say for example? indie filmmakers or people who don't necessarily get their projects picked up. Is there any good news? Has anything happened because of COVID-19 in Hollywood that has benefited a group or a person or, or something, a genre maybe? I think so. Uh, some of it has, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But yes, I think because of uh, COVID-19, Hopefully, more uh, we get to see new voices, new faces because of this uh, incredible belt tightening. Uh, some actors and some big directors may be reconsidered because of their uh, price tag now, you know, and what they are worth to a, a distribution to a, a film company or the uh, the end product uh, is the price tag that they're paying for this actor or filmmaker worth the you know end result uh the other thing i also uh emphasize uh, when i talk to other colleagues is how uh, because of this everything needs to be a safer bet so the uh, studios and the financiers of films are going to look at every player especially the ones in front of the camera uh the players uh, like directors and screenwriters delivering the material a lot more carefully and try to make a safer choice. Uh, when it comes to independent films, because they don't really have to play too much with the whole, the, all the union uh, laws and stuff, they never really stopped making films. They have uh, continued making their films as long as they have access to financing. And it, for them, it has been more of uh, moving the production from America to somewhere that's safer and has lower uh, COVID numbers. So I think uh, we'll get to see anything from new stories. Uh, I think this whole streaming platform uh, will also have because of this fight for content, they are adding so much content to their streaming platforms. You will see new voices, new movies, and films you were not uh, familiar with. But there's also, you know, you need to be a little careful because now everything is bundled up together. And uh, the streaming platforms are usually aiming to show you their new releases. So sometimes you may have to look for those films or look for those uh, new 
faces and new filmmakers. But yes, it, the positive thing is that there's a lot of content that's going to be put up on the streaming services, so more options and more voices, uh, you know, fresh faces and interesting films that you're going to see. Yes, I, I cannot keep up. There's just too much. All the time. <laughs> I always feel like I'm behind. Same here. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Henrik Vartanian, the editor-in-chief of BraveNewHollywood.com. Let me ask you this. Uh, is there a studio or network or streaming platform that stands out as having adapted and done best uh, through COVID-19? That's a very good question. Uh, I think... It, de it depends who you ask. Uh, if you are a fan of Star Wars and Marvel movies and superhero franchise, then you're, uh, you know, you're definitely talking Disney Plus and Mandalorian was a huge hit for them. If you are more of a DC Comics uh, and the type of movies Warner Brothers uh, wanted to release in 2021, like I said, Wonder, Wonder Woman 1984, Suicide Squad, Dune, then... HBO Max is the one that uh, comes to mind. As far as uh, the more indie and a wider variety, uh, in my book, Amazon Prime is a, is a good one. So I think uh, it, it's a matter of taste, especially since the movie-watching public is a lot more involved in, in that, those decisions and you know, shaping those decisions. Who hasn't done a good job? Mm. Well, uh, we know that I, this is not fair to say they have not done a good job because they didn't get uh, they didn't get the time to do it. Uh, COVID nineteen pretty much destroyed something like QB, which was supposed to be the short content uh, mobile version uh, that was a mobile friendly short content for younger demographics. They came and went in six months and. $2 billion of investment was gone. So, wow. yeah. Now, in terms of Brave New Hollywood, what are you covering? Are you covering uh, as business, you know, business as usual with the award season and films coming out? Is there anything you're focusing on for Brave New Hollywood? On Brave New Hollywood, we usually cover indie films, uh, English-speaking films most of the time, and uh, rising stars. Uh, we have been covering uh, some uh, films that have uh, come out during the pandemic, uh, like The Swerve, which was an interesting psychological thriller. And we've also been keeping an eye on the ways uh, stars have been behaving <laughs> during uh, the pandemic and who have, uh, you know, the ones that have lent their voices to the people. Let's not forget that we had uh, big social uh, movements uh, during the pandemic, uh, like Black Lives Matter. And we had some stars who basically lent their social media uh, platform, like Nolan Gold of uh, Modern Family. So that was really impressive to see that uh, they are using their, their platforms to give voice uh, to, the, to the voiceless. And be, be about something. So uh, we are keeping eyes on that. We're keeping eyes on some, you know, industry uh, reports. Uh, but as far as award season, I guess the the ones that we wanted to uh, we wanted to cover most would be some something like the Independent Spirits Awards or award shows that are more that are more about independent filmmaking. 
Makes sense. How about CAN? Is CAN happening this year? CAN must be happening Tuesday, May 11, 2021. That's their usual date, it seems like. Right. They didn't update it, maybe. Yeah. So anything else that I didn't cover that you want to mention? I think a lot of a lot of questions I've been asked is about the after effects, the recovery. Um, I think once all of this is over, theaters will open. I think people who are craving that big screen experience will go back. Um, I think since a lot of things are unknown, things that were in forefront of the industry challenges, things like diversity that were kind of overshadowed by the COVID-19 and the pandemic. They need to come back to the forefront. Uh, Hollywood needs to make better choices in casting people that look average American and represent um, all of us. That is going to be an issue. Uh, Hollywood needs to pay attention to representation and make a better, do a better job at it, especially since everybody's at home and they have more eyeballs on their film productions. Um, stars, uh, especially rising stars, have to be on their best behavior. None of this, you know, choking a fan in a European bar or, uh, you know, crazy things and rants and uh, oh, nasty divorce dramas that drag on because the studio will uh, not have any of that. They want safer choices now to protect profitability, especially because, of course, because everything has been so challenging. So those are the things that I think Hollywood needs to pay attention to, additional stuff that they need to pay um, attention to. That makes sense. Anything we should look forward to? Anything, uh, any projects you're doing or covering on Brave New Hollywood? Yes, uh, this week we saw the release of the 10 European shooting stars, which, um, you know, is different than what we see here in America. These are people Americans are not uh, familiar with for the most part. And we we are focusing on doing a feature on them and featuring these 10 stars on Brave New Hollywood. Uh, Even though when we're focusing on mostly English-speaking films, American films, it is important for people to know what's brewing overseas. So right now, a part of my attention uh, is uh, on that. Wow. Okay. Well, something to look forward to. Henrik, yes. <laughs> thank you for, for all your insight and all your wisdom. Uh, we will catch you on Brave New Hollywood. And uh, thanks for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Henrik Vartanian, the editor of bravenewhollywood.com with wealth of knowledge about the entertainment industry and how COVID has affected it. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Henrik. I appreciate it. The Blunt Post with Vic. Now, despite calling out Twitter today and despite some of the negative aspects of social media, I'm a huge fan of social media because I think uh, for the most part, it's uh, a great invention and it has uh, contributed to our world to our society in so many positive ways but it's easy just to see the negatives if we think about how much more connected we are because of social media the exchange of information just seeing things and being aware of things so much quicker from people raising money and helping people 
so the advantages are really endless, despite some of the um, drawbacks as well. Uh, so I am, for the most part, a, a fan of social media, and I can't see myself ever sort of not using it. I, I know people who have sort of shut down their accounts and just say goodbye. But, but uh, as, as we are talking about uh, Twitter today, uh, I want you to listen to this report that was done by Solar Sands. Uh, it's, it's amusing because it probably hits so many marks uh, that so many of us will find familiar when it comes to Twitter and also other social media. So let's take a listen. Twitter is one of those places where no matter how miserable it makes you, you always feel like you have to come back to it. Like a really hard video game level. Or an abusive relative. It's an addictive website. It's carefully designed to give you an infinite column of posts to scroll through. People often call this their timeline. Your timeline can include all kinds of wonderful things. But the thing you'll most often see is angry people. Outrage! I am disgusted! I can't tea. wait to- after all the sick roasts I get give out. ratio? I'm going to eat people. Pathetic excuses for journalism. Hell oh, yeah. yeah! Everyone on Twitter seems to constantly be angry. Whether it's about politics, or fiction, or some furry saying he's gay a lot. I'm gay! Hey. It really is a fascinating culture. A culture built on negativity. Negativity on the internet is not only accepted, it's popular. I should know. If you can get enough people outraged, you'll get those clicks. While on YouTube, negativity is more of a backdrop for analysis and comedy, on Twitter there is a genuine bitterness behind it. People on Twitter don't normally use negativity as a tool for entertainment. They use it as a tool to be, well, negative. So why is this? I think it's because Twitter is, intentionally or not, designed to be an outrage machine. To me, there are two major reasons Twitter is terrible for discussion, and that is its design and its culture. Now, clearly, political culture in the world right now is very tense, and this may account for some of the difficulty that arises from trying to discuss things on this website. But I don't think Twitter's format is helping. I think it's safe to say that everyone knows what a tweet is. You type something within a 280-character limit and send it off. It can be retweeted, liked, and replied to by anyone. Here's the first problem. 280 characters is supposed to encourage you to be concise. Now most people are stupid and don't know how to be concise. Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could so instead of trying to make a clear point, most people just come up with epic roasts against their opponents. The nature of politics means that most problems cannot be discussed thoroughly, clearly, or insightfully within two or three sentences. It just can't. This is why a lot of political tweets are usually filled with blatant strawmen. There's a certain breed of political tweet that is very popular. It usually goes something like this. Group A. Absurd and exaggerated viewpoint that no one would actually support. Group B. Reasonable and calm viewpoint that no one would actually oppose. How can people support Group A? Wow, I don't know. Me personally, I love babies. I don't know how anybody can support this. These kinds of tweets are not clever. They are not insightful. Most people know they are dishonest, but they can get hundreds of thousands of retweets and likes anyway. Why? 
Well, because it's easy. Anyone can cobble together a caricature of their opponents and argue against it, and when it's on Twitter, it's especially tempting. All you have to do is make a quick, half-assed roast, and that's good enough. And since you don't have much room to get your points across, there's really no expectation to elaborate. Everyone does this at some point. I've done this on occasion, but it's still incredibly flawed. However, there are ways of going around these limitations. You could type a huge paragraph on the Notes app or a Word document and screenshot it. However, these kind of tweets kind of defeat the purpose and often get tiresome to type, screenshot, and open on Twitter again and again and again. Or you could create a thread. Threads are the bane of my existence. Threads are simply a big string of connected tweets that are usually numbered by the tweeter. They're clunky, awkward, and unpleasant to read. And sometimes they can consist of 30 to 40 tweets or more. Imagine reading a page of a book, except every four sentences the paragraph is cut off at a random word and is continued several inches later. That is a thread. I would argue that YouTube is better for discussion despite its obvious problems as well. On YouTube, you can't get away with saying two or three sentences in a video and expect people to take you seriously. Coherent videos often require some editing, a script, some kind of reflection on what you are talking about, Something lasting more than a minute at the very least. And of course, YouTube is not perfect. It is clearly very not perfect and can be as dumb as Twitter on occasion. But hey, at least discussions in the comments allows you to click the replies button and see every single person who replied at once. Twitter's design is good for two things, art and memes. I ironically use Twitter for art more than I do DeviantArt because it's just a more efficient experience. On DeviantArt, if you want to see art from people you watch, you have to click the stack of art, click it again for the specific artwork, and then you can finally see the thing in full detail and favorite it. Then you have to click either the backwards button or go to notifications to repeat the whole process. Now this whole process only takes like four seconds, but when you want to see a lot of art, this adds up. On Twitter, you just scroll down and like, and you have to scroll through each post in order to get to the next one. This makes sure you don't skip any. Same thing happens with memes. I follow a lot of meme bots and out of context accounts because they are so efficient. Tweets are most effective to me when it's a little bit of a chuckler, you know? Something that doesn't really need to be discussed in depth, just something to make you go, and then you move on with your life. DeviantArt has a large problem with click fatigue that Twitter doesn't when it comes to art. But Twitter has a big problem with click fatigue when it comes to threads. You have to click through so much crap just to see a few sentences, and it just gets confusing if enough people start arguing. Then you have the complete lack of tone of voice. Your tone of voice can actually be pretty important in communication. It can give you clues about the emotional state of a person even if they aren't really saying what they are literally feeling. Same goes with body language. At least in video you have tone of voice. Number 15. And sometimes body language. But on Twitter, both of these things are taken away. Despite this, we have come up with some ways of trying to portray this in text. Like putting a bunch of emojis when you're trying to be sarcastic. Or putting a variety of capital and lowercase letters to convey a mocking tone. But these aren't surefire ways especially if you don't know the rules. The final thing is the culture of Twitter. Everything on this website goes by fast. Callouts, cancel culture, and drama are very prevalent, confusing, and can change tides in a blink of an eye. People also have this terrible habit of lecturing others with obvious statements. 
Not a day goes by where I don't see a tweet that says something like, Don't rape people. Like, thanks guys. I was thinking about locking someone up in my shed and taking them to the bone zone. But after seeing this tweet, I have now been informed that is wrong and people will not stand me if that happens. And that's the tea, sis. So what, you may be asking yourself? This isn't going to stop people from using Twitter for serious discussion. And you're probably right. But the point I want to make is that people need to stop taking this website so goddamn seriously. I mean, people have gotten fired and had their careers messed with because of tweets dug up from years ago, and people actually think this is a legitimate injustice or something. If you are one of those people who tweet whenever a thought pops into your head, I don't care how perfect of a person you think you are, you will eventually tweet something that in 10 years time will look bad. We have created this society where every little dumbass comment posted online is elevated to some kind of official statement. People need to step back and really look at what they are getting angry about. When did people start expecting role models from people on the internet? It's why I roll my eyes whenever someone tells another person online they have an ego. Like, duh, everyone on the internet has an ego. It's practically designed to give people egos. Most people have to constantly be promoting themselves or else they won't get very far. People act different on social media than they do in real life. Why does no one get this? Just look at your average Donald Trump tweet and just stare at all the people who have literally nothing to do but make some of the most futile replies to a tweet that I have ever seen. In fact, I made a drinking game out of it. Drink every time you see someone post a terrible, cringeworthy meme. Drink every time you see an oddly sexual meme or political cartoon. Drink every single time you see the same person respond to every single one of Donald Trump's tweets. I don't know who these people are, and I don't care. I just want to know how it is possible they can find the time to do this. It's kind of impressive. Never mind this drinking game is stupid, you will die within the first tweet. I want to present to you this thought. Is this really a place we should be hashing out social issues seriously? Don't get me wrong, Twitter is a fascinating way of conveying news to people that could potentially have lots of benefits by letting people talk directly through social media. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. Social media. A microblog that is filled to the brim with all kinds of nuts from all kinds of trees. It's a goofy news outlet where you can find out about the latest Trump fiasco at best, and a hellhole full of people jumping to publicly shame you for breathing wrong at worst. Although I view Twitter as a frustrating and difficult place to have an actual discussion, it's here to stay, or at least the format is. Everything on the internet should be treated with a fair degree of skepticism. We've gotta evolve, folks. We gotta adapt to this confusing mess. You aren't going to get an informed opinion about anything from Twitter. Just read a book or something. I have three tweets for you today that I'm going to read. They are all about President Trump. The first one is from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She wrote, We know that the President of the United States incited this insurrection, this armed rebellion against our American democracy. He must go. The second one is from Congressman Adam Schiff. He wrote, Donald Trump should never receive another intelligence briefing, not now and not in the future. He cannot be trusted and has done enough damage to our country already. Trump remains a security threat and will continue to be a security threat long after he leaves office. The last one is from Congressman Frank Pallone. He wrote, 
Trump has pro proven to be the most anti-environment president in American history. He's selling our lands and resources off to the highest bidder just days before he leaves office. These last-minute rollbacks are shameful and should be immediately reversed. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.